look one more time at verses 4 through 8 of 1 Peter 2. Father, we're going to see some very heavy and controversial things in this text. Guard me from saying anything amiss. Guard those who are working with me on this text to believe anything or think anything false about you and take us as far as you intend for us to go into the deep things of predestination and the stumbling stone and no further and grant that we would bow in humility and that we would worship and that we'd be, we would be stunned at the grace we've received. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in God's sight chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we saw that last time, namely, Peter's thinking of the stone of Christ that Jesus mentioned. He had become rejected by some, but loved and precious by God. And that was so relevant for this church because they are being rejected and they need encouragement that just like Christ, they too will be a chosen and precious, though they are rejected by men. And now what he does in the remainder of this paragraph is to draw out the contrast between two kinds of responses to the stone. First one that believes, and then one that doesn't believe. And he does it in order to show how we should think about ourselves in God's favor and how we should think about those who may be rejecting us and surrounding us with persecutions. For as it, st for it stands in Scripture, then he quotes Isaiah 28, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. So that part right there is about those who believe. But for those who do not, not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, there will be a vindication of the stone that in unbelief is being cast away. He's going to become not a castaway, but a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling. If, if you do not believe the stone becomes a stumbling stone for you and a rock of offense. You stumble in unbelief and you take offense at the stone. They stumble because they disobey the word, which I think is another way of saying do not believe. They disobey the word. The word is the gospel of Christ crucified and risen. And when you disobey something that says, believe on me, you are unbelieving as they were destined to do. And so all of this is about those who do not believe. So 
we who believe, it says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, not be put to shame. And so he draws out the implication. So honor, not shame, not shame, but honor is for you who believe even though it looks like you're being rejected, just like he had no honor. He was shamed by men, but in the resurrection, he was honored and vindicated, and those who believe on him will share in his honor and will not finally and decisively be put to shame like they are now as aliens and exiles in the world. Honor will come to those who believe. But, and then he shifts over to the negative, but for those who do not believe, this cornerstone is going to be exalted and vindicated though they are rejecting him. And they stumble and they take offense and then comes this extraordinarily controversial sentence. They stumble. Because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Which I take to mean... They are destined, predestined, to disobey the word. Predestined to stumble, which is a disobeying of the word. Here's the more literal translation. They stumble, participle, disobeying the word. And this stumbling is thus defined and unpacked by this participle. They stumble, disobeying the word, unto which, and this which refers back to this disobeying and this stumbling here. They were appointed or destined. Now, some people, in order to avoid the stunning implication that God can predestine the stumbling and the disobeying of his word without himself being unjust and sinful, try to say that this stumbling here is not the disobeying here, but rather this stumbling is the punishment of the disobeying. It's judgment. It's hell. And God appoints those who disobey for stumbling, that is, for punishment. And so it's the punishment, not the disobeying, that is appointed. And God is seemingly off the hook with regard to controlling, governing, destining, appointing disobedience to his word. I don't think that will work for a couple of reasons. One I've already pointed out. I think stumbling here is defined, as the participle indicates, by the disobedience. And if you look at the quote here, 
So, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In this quote from Isaiah 8, this stumbling here is parallel to this offense here. So to stumble is to take offense, that is, not to believe. So I don't think we can escape the implication that God has destined the disobedience to his word. Now, what are we to make of that? Peter had already seen in Jesus' words after the parable of the tenant here in Matthew 21, where he sent his son to the tenants to get the fruit of the farm, and they killed him. And he said, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. I think Peter took that very seriously about this whole event. The Lord's doing, meaning God planned to send his son, which he knew and indeed he planned would be rejected by sinful men. We know that because here in Acts chapter 4, verses 22 to 28, the saints are praying like this. In this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. So four groups were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, namely, murder the Son of God in order that we might be saved. This was God's plan. And therefore, clearly, the New Testament has a category for how people, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, peoples of Israel, and any others who are unbelieving can do sin, can do unbelief by God's plan and by God's predestination without God himself being a sinner. So here are my concluding thoughts about this. Thoughts on the predestination of unbelief in 1 Peter 2, 8. And it's not the only place in the Bible. You can look up the others. This is the other side of the coin from Peter's calling the Christians elect exiles. If some are elect, then God passes over some, and he wills that they not be elect. And they express that in unbelief. The mystery is how God rules over sinners without sinning, not that he does. It's clear that he does from Acts 4, 27 to 28 that we just looked at. God can and does will the sinful unbelief. So he wills what he abhors. He wills the sinful unbelief of those who reject Christ. Yet, there are no persons who want to be saved and are prevented against their will. Nobody will say, I wanted to be saved and you didn't let me. That never happens. Every person who perishes willfully rejects the knowledge of God that they have. There are no persons who are not morally responsible for their unbelief. These are all things taught in the Bible. There are no persons whose judgment will therefore be unjust. All of us were hopelessly sinful. 
We have fallen in Adam. God doesn't deserve, God doesn't owe anybody salvation. He could have left us all to perish and he wouldn't have wronged us. And none of us deserves to be delivered. So, he's saying to these embattled exiles who are so rejected and shamed and insulted and persecuted, take heart. None of your adversaries will thwart God's plans. I think that's why Peter says here, they stumble because they disobey. All these people that surround you are stumbling and making your life miserable. They were destined to do this, which means they are not obstructing, thwarting, denying God's plan. They are fulfilling it. Take heart, just as Jesus was rejected and rose, you too will be honored.